However important your political struggle is around inequality or racial discrimination or cultural discrimination or religious fundamentalism, what is important that you engage with the sense of human empathy? Never forget that you engaging in a struggle for a better humanity. What I find absolutely fascinating is political activists who say they're fighting, they're struggling for a better humanity, but they're terrible human beings. They treat other human beings really badly. They swear people, they threaten to hit them. Now, how can you struggle for a better humanity when you're a horrible human being and behave in the most horrible of ways to other human beings? Welcome to The Enrichment Project, Path to Purpose, recorded by the mad talent at Solid Gold Podcast. It is a series of unfiltered and insightful conversations with some of the most remarkable purpose-driven human beings who have all achieved, created, inspired, triumphed or challenged. And we have a great deal to learn from them. It is a quest to uncover and articulate the steps along the way to help you on your own journey of purpose. I am your host, Richard Wright, and I am delighted to have you with me Thank you for the gift of your time. Let's dive straight in. One of the issues that I often get asked about is about this idea of being an activist, this idea of change, this idea of how do I change the world? Where do I start? And I think for many of us, we've got this idea that we need to do something big, something massive, you know, go and save the polar caps by going to swim in the Antarctic like a Lewis Pew or something like that. And at the end of the day, I think that stops us from making a real impact in our own lives. And my view on that is, and I know we're going to get uh, some exciting views on this from my guest today, but my view essentially is it's what we do with our kids. It's teaching our kids to identify that kid in the play, playground that is ostracized or perhaps marginalized. It is planting vegetables in the garden. It's composting. It's, it's recycling. It's, in fact, I heard an interesting conversation on the, on the way to the studio and the, on the radio. And that was about engagement and this idea that as a man, we need to go and ask permission, um, for our uh, fiancés, uh, you know, from parents to say, listen, can I marry your daughter? Which, somehow to me says there's, a, there's ownership to a woman and you know just educating our own children as to and i've got two daughters educating our kids to you know, who they are and and what's permissible and 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 that they're in charge of themselves and so i think it's starting at home but as i said my guest today um is one of those rare and remarkable people who is a real activist um, his name is Adam Habib. He's a professor at the v University of Advertisement. He's the vice chancellor there. And most excitingly, he's about to take up a position as the director of the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. Adam, an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Um, I asked you before we started the recording, but just for those watching on YouTube, for those of you who can't see it uh, from a podcast point of view, Adam's got this really rad background he's is writing all over his blinds adam tell us exactly what that is so i live in the in the vice chancellor's house at wits right. and to be honest the person who did up this house was both my wife together with some of the people at wits who 
who did the interior decorating. And I think this blind is cool because it's a blind with red writing that's in Afrikaans telling a story. Uh, so it's a story in Afrikaans that's written in the blinds. It's it's a wonderful blind to have in the middle of a in the middle of a study. So Stunning. it's fantastic in that sense. I love it. Cool. And thank you for taking time out. I know that you're wrapping things up at Wits um, and you're extremely busy. So uh, this is a huge privilege for me. And thank you for that. It's a pleasure. And what's also a privilege for me is that I follow you on Twitter and you're one of my favorite people to follow because you are extremely outspoken on your views. You're not scared to challenge anybody uh, and you attract as a result a ton of trolls and bots. Yet you've got an amazing way of dealing with them. Can you explain what that is? So, I mean, I do think uh, the way you deal with this is you've got to understand context and you've got to understand what your agenda is. Right. Most people, most vice chancellors in my, or people in my position say that you must be so concerned about the dignity of your office that you must not engage and entertain uh, the debates that plays out in social media. Right. I believe different in a sense, because it seems to me, if you're so worried about the dignity of your office, you don't fundamentally advance the very mandate that your office is about, which is to speak to truth to power, which is to engage in the public discourse. You basically retreat to the ivory towers, and that's what the complaint of the university has always been. The question, however, is, if you're going to engage, how do you manage the really toxic discourse that can happen in social media. For sure. You either say the most mundane of things so that nobody gets irritated with you, or you engage publicly on the big issues of the day. And then you've got to confront mainly the politicians and the foot soldiers who come after you in quite powerful ways. And it seems to me that the way you have to manage that is firmly, but openly. Right. You do not want them to chase you away from the public discourse because that's what they want. They want the public discourse to be so poisonous mm. that ordinary human beings just get uh, alienated from it. Uh, and so the idea is how do you engage with a sense of purpose, mm -hmm. but also a willingness to have an open mind? That's how I do so. So often you will see on Twitter, I will have an opinion about SABC or the presidency and how sort of Ramaphosa is managing, I would release about eight to 10 tweets. Mm -hmm. And you will see I'll either end off or start off by saying, yeah, the rules. <laughs> exactly. If you're racist, <laughs> if you threaten me, if you uh, use foul language, I will throw you out. Yeah. If, however, you're robust and you differ with me, I'll respect you. Yes. And that's the way I would engage. And it seems to me that it's trying about getting the balance right mm. between, on the one hand, firmness, and the other hand, openness to engagement. Right. And if you don't get that balance right, you, you either retreat into silence or saying mundane things, mm -hmm. or you, you become so difficult that you actually become obnoxious. And the idea is, how do you strike that balance between the two? Balance, for sure. So you wrote in 2017 uh, in a paper, uh, radical politics should not be confused with disrespectfulness, rudeness, and spectacle. And, and that's exactly what you just said now, that you can have this radical political difference opinion. You, you, we, can, we can argue even, um, but just keep it clean and tidy, essentially. 
Um, and, and I enjoy that. I, I love your voice out there. Well, and that's, and the reason I think that that's important is most people are frightened. Yeah. If you speak to ordinary people, they just can't. They say, how do you do this? Why would I do this? And it seems to me that if you have the privilege that I have of being in a safe space, like the vice chancellorship of Wits University, yes. and you've got the responsibility to speak, then you must use that space to speak yeah. and use it in a way that establishes the parameters of what is legitimate debate and what isn't. Right. And we're going to talk about that quite a lot today. So thank you for that. Um, and thank you for that answer. Uh, yes, I do. And, and you always exceedingly polite, even telling people, okay, good night. I'm going to bed now. So if you're going to continue to, <laughs> to comment, I'm going to come in the morning and I'm going to throw you out if you disrespect my rules. Um, and that's great. That really is good. So take me back now. I'd like to just get into your childhood a little bit. And the first question I've got for you is, do you have a memory? of the first time you had this clear idea of what Adam wanted to become when you grew up? No, actually. Uh, so this is the problem. Uh, if you ask me, did I imagine that I would be an academic yeah. and that I would be vice chancellor? And the answer is no. Actually, if you like a pathway that was in, done in part by hard work, yeah. partly by chance, partly by luck and partly by confluence of events that evolved. So when I started as a young person, in my head, as this young child of a kind of middle-class Indian parent in apartheid South Africa, the kind of thing you were taught is become an accountant to become a doctor. Sure. That was the kind of thing that you were taught about. Right. And then ironically, I decided to do, uh, when I went to university, I decided to do, I became in my last in about 1980, mm -hmm. when I just entered my high school years, yeah. I walked in and in my first three months, the, the most amazing thing happened. What you had is Indian and colored schools in apartheid South Africa went on strike. Uh -huh. And they were on boycott for eight months. And what it did is it fundamentally changed who I was. Because suddenly, I didn't know what this was all about. Mm -hmm. But it sounded kind of cool that you could go out to the grounds and hang out with all of these people <laughs> and defy the principle. And so that's what I did. Yeah. And as I was there, I started learning about politics. I started learning about that actually uh, schools were racialized and that's unnatural in society. Mm -hmm. That I lived in an Indian suburb and there's actually that might seem ordinary and noble, but actually in the rest of the world, that's not how they operate. I began to read about Steve Biko and Nelson Mandela. I didn't understand the difference between them. But suddenly, if you like, it politically awakened me. Right. And over the next period of time, next four years in high school, I began to read. I began to give all of my speeches on political questions. Uh, all of that happened. Then when I went to university, I went in to do... Uh, a BSc, a kind of Bachelor of Science. Yeah. And I hated it. Yeah. Uh, and so what I ended up doing, I failed my first year. Can you imagine? I was just about, and, I was just about to say I knew that. Did you hated it so much that you, that you flunked that first year, right? I flunked it completely. And my father said to me correctly, I'll give you one more chance. Yeah. But if you fail again this year, out. That's and it. what did I end up doing is I took political science and history. And the only reason I took political science and history is because I thought it would teach me about politics and about all of this activism that I had suddenly got involved in. Uh. 
And frankly, it didn't teach me any of that. But it did take me down a path. And I had imagined that I would go to law. I finished my first degree and I do law. But when I finished my third year, and I'd done very well by this time now, I'd straight first, finished my first degree. And the big question became, do I want to do Latin and Afrikaans? And the idea was, no, I didn't want to do it. So the only reason I went into honors political science was because effectively uh, that that allowed me not to do yeah, English avoid... and Afrikaans and Latin. Yeah. The second thing that happened was I had got involved with my current wife, Fatima, and we were going out and her family hated me. They thought I was a really uh, <laughs> radical who would be in jail and that their daughter would be would be uh, forever imperiled. And uh, my family didn't like her either, uh, <laughs> partly because she was too modern, etc. And so what we decided to do is uh, get away from the family. And yeah. so we had said to them that her fam- she said to her family she wants to apply to Witch University, mm. which was, we were in Peter Maritzburg, they said, good idea. What is Adam doing? And she said, she doesn't know. He, she thinks he's applying, he's staying. And so I hadn't told my family anything. And so they said, fantastic. Why don't you go to Vitz? Mm-hmm. And so Fatima applies, gets this thing, and off she goes to Vitz. And then I had, in the meantime, quietly applied to Vitz, also been accepted, but told nobody. Mm-hmm. And when she had arrived at Vitz and ensconced herself in Vitz, and after the first day, I simply told my family, off, I've gone to Vitz. And I've gone to this thing. And so Fatima and I had a year, year and a half away from the family, what I call, we were refugees of love, if you like, at Bits University. <laughs> and that's when I did an honors. Mm-hmm. And after that, um, ironically, uh, I wanted to do a master's at Bits, but uh, as I was thinking about a master's, I wanted to do an administrator program. I wanted a kind of internship, you know, a kind of uh, be a tutorial leader or something like that. Mm-hmm. And whoever, I mean, this is 1988, it's out outrageous that somebody said this, but they said to me, we think that this is not the best place for you. We think you might do better at the University of Durban Westfall, which was ironically an Indian university. And I had never been to UDW, but that's how I landed. Ironically, they had a position for a tutorial leader. I went to do that. I continued to study at at Natal. Mm -hmm. And then in the course of there, I had begun to get involved in being an academic. I was still a junior lecturer working in this. And then ironically, the Iraq war happened. Yeah. And as I was in the Iraq war, I was an activist at UDW and I was party to uh, protests around the Iraq war. And the high, co- the commissioner from uh, the American embassy came to a, do a debate. And he and I landed up in a debate where I uh, was very critical of the Iraq war and he was trying to defend it as a diplomat was. Right. And then a couple of months later, he sent me an invitation and said, uh, would you be open to applying for the Fulbright Scholarship to the United States? Yeah. And I did. Uh, ironically, I was quite blunted at this thing when they asked me where you were a communist. I said, absolutely. They asked me, <laughs> uh, what do you think about the United States? I think it's an imperial power. And I thought there's no way they'd give me the scholarship. Yeah. And ironically, I did get the scholarship. Sure. Uh, and I went to uh, a year later to the United States for a three-year degree and to do a PhD. And it changed my life, partly because it uh, opened my eyes up that 
our struggle was not the only struggle in the world. Mm. It made me even more committed to addressing inequality and democracy, building democracy, etc. But it also made me widen my horizons to see the world as a single home and that the trick about us surviving yeah. as a human species was about building the bridges of human solidarity across the world. It wasn't uh, about, you know, sorting out South Africa between white and black. Yeah. It was about how do you look at the world as a single planet? Sure. And how do you think about human beings as a single human community? Mm. And that fundamentally went on to live with me uh, for the next 20 years. And so I landed up coming back, being an academic, transforming institutions. And that was the pathway to a vice chancellor. So if you ask me, did I ever know I'd be vice chancellor? The answer is no, I never expected to become one. Absolutely not. That's an amazing, remarkable journey. But one of my questions was actually, because I honestly don't know, um, you became professor of political geography and a PhD in, in New York. You've explained a part of that quite nicely in terms of us looking at this thing as a globe and humanity as one single species. And that's incredibly hard to do because we are just so vastly different and we have so many vastly different conditionings. So how do we do that? So, I, you know, there's a couple of things. Firstly, I should clarify that I did my degree in political science. So it's a okay. PhD in political science. I don't okay. know why sometimes some of the discourse has it as political geography. The second is how do we do that is the issue. So for me is where you started off. I think we have to do this wherever we are. Mm -hmm. So, and I, I want to start in your introduction where you started with your children. Yeah. Uh, and it seems to me you start in the small things in life. So for me, you know, somebody once told me your greatest love story is your children. You never know it until you have a child, one of your children born and put in your arms. Yeah. And it seems to me that our future lies in these young people. Mm -hmm. Ironically, not in the politicians that are young, but in ordinary young people. Yes. Because what I find my children, for me, non-racialism, globalism, uh, looking beyond culture and race and identity is all an issue. For me, it's a political act. For mm -hmm. my children, it's normal. Mm -hmm. It's normal life. That's who their friends are. Correct. That's who they, the schools that they grew up in. Mm -hmm. they, it's a part of who they are. When they take up the issue of the environment, for them, it's not a political act. It's an act of human nature, not a political action in its own right. Yes. And it's in that natural circumstance. And I think that the reason we're able to do that is because they grew up in a non-racial environment. They grew up in a non-racial school and we created that in a way that was very different. Yeah. So that's the first thing that is important. The second is where it, in whichever institution you find yourself, mm. it seems to me that that's what you should do. You should be trying to engage in a manner that addresses the inequality in our world. Now, part of that inequality is racial. Part of it is economic. Part of it is cultural. And it seems to me that you have to act in all of these ways. So for me, you know, when if I'm looking at religiously, there's only one God. And all of us are different parts to the same God. Mm -hmm. That's what this is about, if you like. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that that's what is particularly important. 
And I say that uh, from a cultural, from economically, I've always said we've got to address economic inequality in our world. Yeah. Because if you want to understand social and political polarization, you can't truly understand it without understanding the real deep inequalities in our world and how that makes ordinary people angry. Right. The reason you and I can't walk in Johannesburg, but when I travel to Dakar, Senegal, uh, I can walk at two o'clock in the morning and nobody would harm me. Sure. Dakar is a much more poorer society than Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. But the difference is it's not as unequal as Johannesburg. When you grow up in Alexandra and you look across the highway and you see Santon, yeah, you realize that you have so little because the other side has so much. And it, if we address that inequality, mm. uh, it becomes particularly important. And then the third and final thing, yeah. however important your political struggle is around inequality or racial discrimination or cultural discrimination or religious fundamentalism, what is important that you engage with the sense of human empathy? Never forget Mm. that you engaging in a struggle for a better humanity. What I find absolutely fascinating is political activists who say they're fighting, they're struggling for a better humanity, but they're terrible human beings. (laughs) They treat other human beings really badly. They swear people. They threaten to hit them. Now, how can you struggle for a better humanity when you're a horrible human being and behave in the most horrible of ways to other human beings. Whether they're white or black or Muslim or Christian, doesn't doesn't make a difference. Mm. Uh, Mm. The fact is you can't say, I want to fight for a better humanity and then conduct that struggle in the most disgusting and destructive of ways. And so for me, what is important has become the path to a better society. Mm. It has to be a part of empathy. It has to be a part of care. It has to be a part of trying to put yourself in the perspective of somebody else. Mm. And that's not been understood. This is why Ace Magashule can talk as much as he wants about mm. human empathy and better humanity. But then the way he behaves to his, comp- to his political antagonist is a horrible human being. The same with Julius Malema. Yeah. The same with Jacob Zuma. You can't claim to want to build a better society when you behave like a terrible human being. Yeah, yeah. And that's true of Donald Trump or yeah. it's true of many other people around the world. Yeah. You've made it this far, probably because the topic resonated with you. If you're wondering what the show is all about, listen to the trailer at the start of the season and find out how this show is going to help you along your own path to purpose. You've stumbled on a project that is all about purpose. Find out why the guests are all so vastly different, but yet all have so much in common. Hop on board this journey with me, follow the Enrichment Project so that you don't miss out on a single episode and share it with, well, everyone. We are all looking for more meaning in our lives. If the show speaks to your identity or the identity of your brand, consider sponsoring a season Let's make the circle bigger. Back to the episode, and thanks for listening. 
So essentially, it's leadership of self. You, you, in fact, you can't be a decent leader if you don't lead yourself well. And if you, you know, it's when nobody else is watching you and when it doesn't matter, when you're not scoring points anywhere, it's who you are as a human being at the end of the day. Um, and funny, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, and you've, I think you've answered it for me, is, you know, the greatest threat to South Africa, uh, in my mind, that would be the extreme inequalities that we have. And I think you've hit the nail on the head here. And I'm very sorry that I didn't get your book before this talk. Um, and the one that, that I really want to chat about is, is Rebels and Rage, reflecting on the fees must fall. And I think that's also what you're mentioning here in terms of, you know, having a voice and defending inequality, but it's how you do it that counts. Am I right in saying that? Absolutely. So fees must fall was really interesting for me mm. because in a lot of ways, I agreed with the students. Right. I thought that the, they had said that the cost of higher education had become too high. Mm -hmm. And they were absolutely right in that. And the reason it had become high is because government, for all of the big talk, the ANC government was saying about free education, but they were dropping the subsidies to universities. So we were, okay. to keep it going, we were increasing fees right. to make up for the fall in subsidy. Yeah. Now, when, and you do this for 10, 15 years, you price out higher education. And the students were absolutely right to say, poor people, middle-class people can't afford higher education and we're not going to allow this to happen. Mm. So I identified ironically with the struggle. My argument was, you're fighting with me. I don't have this decision. The only guys who can make this happen is government. government. And when I spent that entire night on the concourse, I said to the student leaders, I agree with you, but I won't make the fee increases go away. The only person who's going to make this go away is Jacob Zuma himself because he's going to pay the fees. And that was what fees of fall was about. Yeah. The real issue then became not the cause itself, but how you conducted the cause. Yes. And in the book, I write about the integrity of student leaders, the integrity of academics, some academics who are opposing. And I said to them, here's the problem. You claim to want to act for the poor and the disadvantaged. But then you don't behave it in a way. So I had yeah. student leaders who said no to exams. And then they'll come to me quietly and say, can we write it in the office so that nobody sees <laughs> exactly. us? I had, I had oh. student leaders say to me, no, we believe in free education and we believe in measured uh, expenditure. And then they'll come and meet me in the Hyatt and they'll have drinks worth 2,000 uh, ran and run away because oh. they would only choose whiskey that was black label and yeah. all of that kind of stuff. And I said to them, you're behaving exactly like Jacob Zuma and Julius Malema. You say you want to be different, yeah. but you behave no differently from the political principle that you are critical about. And it seems to me that that was the problem mm. about all of this. Uh, and for me, I learned in this last 15, 20 years of engaging in trying to transform that it is as important how you conduct that struggle mm. as conducting the struggle itself. For sure. If you can have the best goals in the world, but if you're malevolent in the way you behave, mm. there is no way you can create a better society. For sure. And if you want to see all of this, look at the last 10 years in South Africa. We had uh, Jacob Zuma mm. speak about radical economic transformation and addressing inequality. And what he did is he destroyed ESCOM, he destroyed Transnet, he destroyed SABC, he destroyed Denal, and in the process, built himself a house worth hundreds of millions of rands and bankrupted our society and sold it 
to the highest bidder. Mm. That is what I mean. You don't yeah. get a better society out of malevolent behavior. Yeah. And that's the lesson that I think we need to learn. Yeah. So I'm going to agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, how can I not? And again, you know, one of the things I speak about a lot from a leadership point of view is that leaders aren't judged by how they think and by what they write. Leaders are judged by what they do and their actions. Um, and, and that's it. It doesn't matter uh, you know, what, what hymn sheet you're singing from. It, it's how you, how you walk and how you talk. Uh, I walk the talk. So as I listen to you, I get a bit of a guilt pang. So I obviously was on the other side um, of the apartheid um, struggle in being privileged and being white. And as much as I had my own struggles within that, uh, parents who couldn't afford things that other kids had, and I, I moaned about struggling because I couldn't afford the latest cricket bat or the, you know, the bicycle that everybody else was was riding around on, and I had to save money and do jobs to build up money for my own. It it was absolutely nothing to you know anybody else. But that was literally that was my world. And there are two things I want to point out here. So, so number one is I got to go to uh, Randolph Afrikaans University and I studied law because same from your point of view, parents said, this is what you need to go and do because you need, you need <laughs> that's the job in the future. Um, and I did a BA because the marks weren't good enough for anything else. And one of the subjects I took uh, because it seemed interesting was political science. And as you said, you know, political science, I was bored stiff. It's like, I don't want to learn about these things. And this isn't political, but it, it wasn't relevant to me. And, but to some of the kids in my class, it was, and they've gone on to be spokespeople and to go and change things and be activists. And, but it just didn't grab me because I was never made aware. And I went to the, I did my national service and traveled around South Africa singing as the, you know, the good boys front for the South African Defense Force. And I didn't know any better because again, my parents hadn't exposed me to a different way of thinking. They hadn't exposed me to, hey, this is, you know, you're privileged and this is what the rest of South Africa looks like. So I, I was so blinkered and it's been a hard struggle for me to undo that and try and understand and, and to be okay with the childhood that I had. And for me, I listen to you and I'm guilty because I wasted my university fees. I got a small scholarship paid for my books, but my parents said, we'll pay until you either drop out or fail. And I changed two and a half years in and started studying law and then didn't finish that. And, and I look back now and I'm like, wow, you know, I don't regret the fact that I don't have um, any tertiary education behind me. I, I really don't. I've done some amazing, interesting things and I've got myself in places because of what I want and who I am and what's interested to me and, and my purpose. But I look at people who can't afford that and haven't been so privileged and being white has helped me. Um, and I know for a lot of people who are not white, the education is getting out of where they are at. It's that step. So I do feel guilty in that. Um, and maybe you want to you know, so address I, that. I will say two things uh, around that, Richard. Uh, right. I mean, this is the interesting thing. The, the first is I want to say something about leadership. Right. And then I respond to you. On leadership, the only thing I would say, in addition to what you said, is that leadership, when you're displaying it, differs from historical moment to historical moment mm -hmm. and from space to space. Right. There are certain principles that apply there. But how you lead New Zealand will be very different to how you lead South Africa, partly because they're such different spaces. Right. They're such different social environments. Mm. And I often engage Cyril Ramaphosa in this public debate. And I say, the thing that worries me about Cyril is I, I know he means well, but he sometimes thinks he's going to be managing Toronto or New Zealand rather than <laughs> South Africa. And, and I think context matters. I also think 
that a historical moment matters. When you're in the middle of a pandemic, you have to lead differently to how you were outside a pandemic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the first thing I would say. On the second that you spoke about, you know, I think all of our contexts, I don't think we should imagine all of our environments, Mm -hmm. all of our upbringings as privileged or or not privileged. Mm-hmm. I think that they have a privilege to degree. So between you and me, you've given me your environment. Now, let, let me give you mine. Right. I grew up in a middle-class Indian environment, mm-hmm. largely middle-class. So I've never wanted for anything uh, much. I probably was less privileged than yours, mm-hmm. but it was far more privileged than somebody who was the child of a worker. Or it was much less privileged by somebody who was the child of an African worker. Right. So I- imagine privilege mm-hmm. and oppression in a form of a continuum. And it's, it's every, everybody gets located somewhere along those lines. You get in. I mean, to be honest, yeah, you get slotted in. So you might have a very privileged existence compared to me, but if you compared your privileged existence to Oppenheimer's son, that would be, you kind of say, well, I wasn't that kind of privilege. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I think that's the first thing that's important to understand. Right. That we've had, because, you know, if you Patrice Motsepe's son, you are far better off than if you the son of a worker mm. in Dansania in the Eastern Cape. Sure. And we need to understand this as a continuum. Second, all of our environments, Mm-hmm. had positives and negatives. And partly, even the most exploited environment comes with partly, partly because you, you're not aware of race, mm-hmm. because you've only grown up, if you like, in an African environment or an Indian environment, etc. But also, your, your behavior to others is in part defined by your oppression, but sometimes is defined by racism itself. I've seen Black people can be as racist against white people. Of course, they didn't so, have power. Yeah. So the consequences of that racism was very, very different. Mm-hmm. But it's worth understanding that. And if our life is to settle the scores of our past, mm-hmm. we'll never survive as a human species. Mm. And that's not South Africa. It's globally. If Muslims are trying to settle scores with Jewish people, if Jewish people try to settle scores with Christian people, humanity has been killing each other for two thousand, for thousands of years. Yeah. If we start trying to settle the scores of our ancestors, none of us will survive. Yeah. It is not the divisions of our past that should define us. It is the potential of wanting to live with each other in an inclusive future that should define how we behave. And that's, if you like, is where my political philosophy begins. Mm. And that's what I think we have. So I'll give you one final thing. Uh, I was saying to somebody the other day, you know, and it was a debate about the United States and it's about how white workers in the United States have been mobilized by Donald Trump. Yeah. And I've argued that the fundamental project of progressives in the United States is to make sure that social justice is not a zero-sum outcome, so that the advancement of poor black people cannot be the exploitation of poor white people. We've got to say both of us have a collective future 
in inclusive agenda. Yeah. And that's the way you win this world. Otherwise, it's going to become a zero-sum game. Yeah. And there'll always be somebody undermining you because there's somebody that's going to be the loser. For sure. We need to create the maximum unity so that all of us benefit from an inclusive future. So, so it's that concept of an eye for an eye makes the world blinder, right? That's exactly That's right. exactly it. So just a question for me to you. So from where, for, for what you want for your own children, right? So now their identity is different to your identity because they've grown up in a different society and a different culture. Is that a private school culture? Is it a public school culture? How do we trade off? So, so this has been a hard one for me, even deciding where my, my kids go to school. And they're in public schools. They're in good public schools. And... You know, as far as I'm concerned, I would like to give them the opportunity to see the world as it is, not from this very privileged, rarefied existence. Um, but again, as you said, there's a continuum and it's very different. There are public schools and public schools, private schools and private schools. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So I went, both my kids went to public schools. Okay. And it was a conscious thing. So I, we decided, and I'll be honest with you, when they started, they went to private school, a public school in Saxonwell. They went to Saxonwell Primary. Okay. And it was really lovely school, to be honest. Uh, it was in a lovely suburb. And what was interesting about it is it was majority black. Right. But it was in an up, upper middle class suburb. The suburb's gone down there. I think there's a Saxon bold Shabin there right now. That's kind of the whole Yes, of course. That's exactly <laughs> right. But they would go there and a number of the children of the people who used to work in the houses yes. in Saxon well used right. to go to the school. Right. And so my kids learned very quickly. Uh, they operated in schools across race, class, mm. and, and gender divide. So that was the first thing. Then when they started to go to high school, I went to St. David's, I went to St. John's. We had all of the schools checked out. And then my sons walked into Parktown Boys. Yes. And they walked in and they said, this is the school we want to be to. Now, it was a public school, but it was a very good public school. Yes, yes. And what we did is the trade off that Fatima and I did is, and Fatima did more of this than I did. Right. She said, okay, we'll go to public schools, but I'm going to get onto the governing board and I'm going to make sure that everything works in the school. She's and, that Indian mother. So the, that's right. So she made sure yeah. she got onto the governing board and she managed uh, so she could be certain that the school was delivering. Yeah. And I think it was the best decision that we made yeah. because what my children learned, they went to good school, they went to good public school, yes. but they truly learned to operate beyond race mm. and beyond class. I think that's the And gift. that was important mm. for giving them a kind of open consciousness, a consciousness that we can all be part of a single human family. Yeah. And that was important. I think so. It, it, in a lot of ways, it was one of the better decisions mm. uh, that we made uh, around that. And I think that that's a, a, exactly what we need to do. So for me, you're right, there's some great people that come out of private schools. Mm. But for me, I've given some lectures at private schools that I've got to say, you really got to work if you want to be at a private school to assist your children to start operating not only beyond race, but beyond class. Because if everybody thinks that going to Switzerland for the summer holidays or the winter holidays is natural, then you're making those kids grow up in an environment that they're going to be set up for failure. Yeah. 
And that's what is important. Yeah. They must learn to navigate the world as it is, not in the way that you imagined it should be. That's a great, great answer. Thank you. Um, so we need to be drawing to a close and I could, I could, I could carry on the conversation forever and I could see how passionate you are and it's amazing. But let's just get this, bring this back to purpose, right? Um, at what point in time, and just a short answer here, at what point in time did you really think and feel to yourself, I'm following what I'm doing is my purpose. This is what I've been put on this planet to do. Uh, was there a moment like that or is it something that you look back and you realize it's all been threaded together? Yeah, it's I, it's probably the latter. Right. I look back and it's kind of threaded together. I kind of know now yeah. that I think being involved in higher education is important mm. because it can be the institutional interlocutor, the, uh, the, the midwife of building a better society. If you can figure out how to get poor people and give them a quality education mm -hmm. and send them out, what you in principle doing is addressing inequality because if poor people are coming in but they're getting a quality education and yeah. they're going out to become accountants teachers lawyers they're changing the circumstances of their families yes. they're changing the circumstances of their community and in that process you're creating social mobility and you're addressing inequality yeah. and for me that's the project of wits it's the project of soas it's the project of institutions yeah. how do you take the university what you have to do is give them a quality education. You can't bring poor people in and give them a bad education mm. because then you consolidate the very problem Correct. that we are. So the trick is good education, but make sure that it's available for a broader range of people. Yeah. And that for me is what the university project is about. And that I must have, it must have dawned on me about 10 years ago right. that this is what I'm doing. Yeah. And this is why it's so important. Sure. And okay, so let's take you back to being a child, right? So what I know about purpose and what I've learned about purpose through these amazing interviews is that very often people that are extremely purpose-driven, who are, who are changing the world, making a very, very big difference, have become the thing that they once needed the most in their own lives. It was that they've, it's that gap, it's that missing something that they wish they'd had or you know, becoming that person. Can you relate to that at all? Is there a sense of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, so I, when I grew up, my mom died when I was uh, nine years old. Wow. And she died of, she, she was 33. She, when she was 33, she got cancer. Oh, that's tough. By 36, she had died. Yeah. And in a sense, oh. uh, I grew up without a mother, if you like. I, I was lucky that I grew up in an extended family. Mm -hmm. And they provided mm -hmm. support. And financially, I was taken mm -hmm. care of and all of that kind of stuff. But not having a mother actually haunted me throughout my life. And ironically, it was something that when I had my children, my biggest fear mm. was that something would happen to me. Mm. And I would often trade off with God, actually. My single prayer was let me live until these children are adults. Let me see them grow up. And that haunted me partly because it wasn't the money. It was not having a mother when everybody else had a mother. Mm. It was not being able to go to her and talk to her. Mm. It was not being able to go on holidays with her. Mm. It was not having, what used to haunt me was going to school, you know, where parents day and my mother wouldn't be there. It was in the mm. simple acts that haunted me. Sure. And in a lot of ways, I believe I was 
had, I was really troubled as a teenager. So, uh, you know, partly because of not having a mom. And mm -hmm. I often say to Fatima, and she always laughs at me and says, it's not true, but mm -hmm. uh, Fatima stabilized me. She, she became an anchor in my life. Mm. And by becoming an anchor, it kind of stabilized mm. me. And, and that was really important. And had Fatima not come into my life when she did, mm. I don't think I would have had the anchor. And I don't think that anchor is this thing. Now, that story, how does it play out? Well, for me, what we have to do is make sure that every young child has an anchor. Mm. That anchor may be their parent, but that anchor, if they don't have parents, has to be institutions. The society has to be structured in a way that if somebody loses their parents, something, the society kicks in. And when we have a deeply unequal society, when you have a society without functioning institutions, that anchor is missing. And that for me is the real driver, if you like, of why it's important to address this. So, you know, if we're going to have a future collectively as a human community, yeah. we can't be as polarized as we are. And if we're not going to be as polarized as we are, we have to bring our inequalities down. But we also have to build places like WITS and UJ and UCT and Stellenbosch and all of these places. We have to build other institutions mm. that take care of the human community. We shouldn't have people who are sick and they can't get medicine. Mm. We shouldn't have people in the dawn of the 21st century struggling to put food in the mouths of their children. Yeah, that shouldn't it's be. Implausible. It's implausible. Mm. We are rich enough as a human community Correct. where that shouldn't happen. Mm. And for me, that has to happen. And if you think it can't happen, well, walk in parts of Western Europe. Yeah. Walk in Norway. Walk in Denmark. Walk in Sweden. It can happen. Why can they do it and we can't? And what are the checks and balances that they've, by default or by design, mm. have established that allows nobody to starve, nobody not to have medication, everybody to go to school, everybody to have all of the life circumstances mm. that is required to give them a fulfilled living. That shouldn't be a Norwegian or a Dutch Privilege. or Swedish privilege. It should be a human privilege mm. that is available to all of us by members of being part of a human community. You've touched on so many things for me there. And so my own journey, uh, when I started with cancer, brain cancer, I had six months to live. Um, and I always say this, my, my greatest fear is not dying. It's a change in your living circumstances and you're just no longer living. But my greatest fear is leaving my two little girls as a single parent without their dad. Um, and you've just so eloquently expressed that. And that's part of my own book, um, The Power of Purpose, that that was my purpose and my fight with brain cancer and, and being so determined to overcome all odds because my fear was, number one, I hadn't uh, through a whole lot of circumstances, I wasn't in a position where I was able to die or would be able to die financially. I wasn't financially in a position to leave them. So that was a big yeah. fear because if I couldn't, who was going to? Um, who was this community? Who who were the people, the institutions that were going to be able to look after my kids um, without me there? That was huge for me. So as you're talking, a uh, big smile on my face, just really resonating with me. Um, and, and so Richard, I must say, I'm sorry, I must no, say no. that is a very poignant thing to say 
because I've got a colleague of mine mm. who has at this very moment got cancer. And uh, she had it a long time ago, 20 years ago. Mm. And uh, she licked it. And then 20 years later, it popped up again. Yeah. Uh, and she, I, I watch her grappling with these questions. Mm. And for me, it's not exactly the same questions because she doesn't have kids, etc. I I can understand it. It's a real angst when I watch mm. her going through that that challenge that she goes through. Thank you. So I'm, I know you need to run, so I'm going to end off. And just by saying, you know, I, I love the fact that you, you, you again expressed the fact that you're another fantastic example of we become, when we are willing to do the identity searches, when we're willing to unbecome, when we're willing to confront these things that could become the opposite, that could turn us in a completely different direction, we very often become the person that we most needed, which is making the world better. We're just becoming a better, better version of ourselves, which is helping our kids to become better human beings that we could ever become. You're a remarkable human being. What an absolute privilege for me, Adam. Um, I wish you well in your new venture. I didn't even get to ask you what Oriental and African um, studies are, but I'm, I'm sure this isn't going to be our last chat. You, you've given me so much value. And uh, for everybody listening, I thank you for the book that's going to come with your chapter in it. I thank you um, and wish you well on your, on your journey. Absolutely. And thank you very much for inviting me, Richard. Great. Bye-bye. Cheers. Thank you for staying right to the end of the episode and for joining me on the Enrichment Project. Before you go, please share this episode with your friends and your colleagues. They will thank you, I'm sure. Remember that you can catch each Path to Purpose episode by watching on YouTube or if you prefer, on your favorite podcast app. The link to my book, The Power of Purpose, is in the show notes. Please go and check it out. It's a rad account of my own story of purpose and resilience and my fight against brain cancer. I finished six full Ironman events, a number of multi-stage mountain bike races, nine Ironman 70.3 races, including the Ironman World Championships and a bunch of other endurance events, all with stage four brain cancer because I wanted it that badly and getting to the finish line meant that much to me. As a professional inspirational speaker, business and life coach, author and storyteller, I'd love to add more value to you or your organization. Please find more details on my website, IamRichardWright.com and book me today for a live or virtual keynote, a masterclass, workshop or coaching session, or please follow my journey on Facebook, I am Richard Wright, Twitter, The Right Rich, Instagram, I am Richard Wright, or on LinkedIn. I'd love the opportunity to enrich your team. Thank you to the professional crew at Solid Gold Podcasts for the support, the talent, and the mad skills. And to Anna Hick for her creativity and genius video magic. Thank you. You all rock. <laughs>